you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 7 through 19. It's one of the simple joys in life to walk up such a nice stairway. Really appreciate that. Uh, If you do not know me, I'm Nick Krause, the hopefully soon to be pastor of Evergreen Community Church. Uh, It's been just such a pleasure that the church that I ended up at is the church that I've gotten to know over the past year. It's just so such amazing providence that God worked it out that way. And one of the things that I've just been so excited about is my first year, just even in, in my internship, I got to preach through most of a book. I got to preach about half of the book of Philippians here, and that was such a pleasure. And now we've been working through Mark. Now I've preached uh, through almost, well, actually, next week, I'll have preached through three chapters of the book of Mark before I even began to be a pastor. That's a pretty awesome thing. Uh, and I'm just really excited to go through this text with you. And as we've been going through this text, we've really been being introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing all his different acts, all his different works, the words that he spoke as a testimony to who he is. Really, as you're being introduced to Jesus, Mark has been trying to convince you why you should follow Jesus. What are the evidences that are there? Why are people followers of Jesus to begin with? Why is it that already we've seen in our text four different people drop their business, leave everything behind to follow Jesus? And we've seen a lot of different things about why that is, what it is about Jesus that has drawn them to him. And first of all is his speaking. That's what he came to do. He came to preach. He was preaching that the kingdom is near and that the time of God has fulfilled, that that promise that was made to David of a future son, that a son of David would reign forever on his throne, the man of God's own choosing, that promise had arrived, had been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And he proved this to everyone around him by performing miracles, showing that his testimony was authenticated and empowered by God himself. That's the most important figure that we're being introduced to in the gospel of Mark. But there's another group that Mark wants to from the very beginning, seek to introduce you to, and that's to his 12 apostles. Let's read then this introduction to the 12 apostles, starting at verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem and Idumea. And from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him or fell before him and cried out, Uh, and touched him. 
And what, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanergus, Boanagoras, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's the reading of God's word. Before we listen to the sermon, let's go to him and pray that he would bless his words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that it would, that your Holy Spirit would make it effective in our hearts as Steve has just prayed for us. Pray that you would bless the sermon, that you would help us to be attentive to it, and that even I, as I preach it, would be worshiping you for all that you reveal in your word about your son. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Roman Catholicism has a doctrine that really points to their understanding of why the apostles are so important. If you've ever heard of it, the doctrine of apostolic succession, they believe that the Pope is there, and the reason why the Pope is the head of all the church is because Jesus was said to have appointed this individual, Peter, to be the head of the church. And apostolic succession teaches that that bishop of Rome then set up other bishops and would, through the laying on of hands, transfer his authority, the authority of Jesus, to certain individuals. And apostolic succession is actually not just a teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It's also found in Anglicanism. It's found in some Lutheran sections of the church. It's not really that prominent in the Lutheran church, but there's a couple of churches I was surprised by that believe that they can basically trace their lineage, their pastor of their church, to another pastor who is traced back to another pastor. And that is this long string of pastors going all the way back to Peter himself. And what they believe is that this gives the church authority. That that means that when the church speaks to certain issues, because we can trace our lineage back through back to the original apostles, that gives the church authority to say God's word and to declare, declare God's word. And this is why specifically now in Roman Catholicism, they would teach that 
That's why the scriptures have authority. Because apostles spoke it. And also why the church today has the same authority as the Bible. Because the apostles, if you will, today have that authority as delegated to them by Jesus Christ. That has led to some very absurd issues throughout church history. Particularly, we, you could focus on certain early popes or bishops of Rome who taught heretical doctrines. You could point to the vast sexual immorality that was plagued, plagued the Roman pontiff for ages before it was cleaned up after the Council of Trent in the late 1500s. But you can also point to, the one I always go to, is something that the Council of Constance cleaned up in the 14, about 1414 to 1416, which is when the Roman Catholic Church had three popes at the same time who all claimed this direct lineage, who that was made a lot of confusion for from about 1313 to the 1400s. For 100 years, the church was very unsure of where authority lies. The apostles are very important. They are, as Scripture says, the very foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks to this, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles, his apostles, are the foundation of it. And it's really important that we understand what this foundation is because if we don't understand it, we'll be like the Roman Catholic Church and we'll find ourselves standing on thin air. If everyone in this room was standing on a sinkhole, you'd want me to let you know. If you bought a house and you figured out there's, there's a sinkhole next to it, you probably want me to tell you. That's why it's a good thing to investigate the foundations of what you're standing on or what you believe in. And the amazing thing is, is from our text that we'll see that the apostles being the foundation of the church is not rooted in their identity as individuals, but it's rooted in the person whom they represent. The apostles are the foundation of the church because Jesus Christ used them to preach his message. The apostles are the foundation of the church because they, as the 12, were given a unique authority, a unique authority that's established and given, has ended up giving us the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Our foundation is the apostles, but it's in the apostles that Jesus Christ himself selected. And that's what we're going to look at today in our text, in this introduction. We're going to see really the, the true significance of the foundation that Jesus Christ set up. And we're going to see that their uniqueness is all derived from the fact that they were chosen by Christ. They were chosen from the midst of a crowd of disciples in verses 7 through 12. We'll look at how they were chosen to represent his authority in verses 13 through 15. And lastly, we're going to look at these individuals and see how these individuals that he selected, exactly what their role was. So let's go to our text. Starting in verse 7, 
What's the point that Jesus is trying to draw out from our text? Really, it seems like he's been moving from an introduction in chapters 1, and then in chapter 2, he shifted his focus to deal with the conflict and the Pharisees' rejection of his authority. But what we see in chapter 3, the very beginning, what Mark wants to draw his attention to, is that despite that conflict, despite what the Pharisees were doing, that did not halt Jesus' popularity. Look at verse 7, that when he withdrew to his disciples by the sea, what he has following him is a great crowd. They were following him from absolutely everywhere. Galilee and Judea, that's the surrounding region where Jesus has been preaching. It makes sense, and up until this point, all of his disciples and the crowds of people following him have been from Galilee and Judea. But his popularity is starting to spread to Jerusalem and Idumea, that's the south. From beyond the Jordan, that's to the east, that's the edge of Israel. And, around, and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now this right here, this is to the far north, just outside of Israel. Seeing that his popularity is spreading about approximately about a 120 mile radius from where Jesus's ministry started. That's a 40-hour walk, which you're probably not going to do in two days of straight walking. You're going to have to take a break. It's probably going to be about a week's travel in the desert with no grocery stores, having to carry all your supplies with you. This is a huge investment, a huge trek. But this crowd is coming to him for a very specific uh, reason. At the very end of verse 8, it says that this great crowd, right? A great crowd, they came to him when? Hearing all that he was doing. That's what caused him to do it. And it might be a good point to stop and just say that this is a good reason to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you've heard all that he did. He healed the sick. He performed miracles. He rose again from the dead. And the living God right now is, like Steve said, he's transforming people's lives. Once you hear who Jesus is and all that he has done, that's the very first and foremost reason why you should follow him. If he didn't do these things, you shouldn't follow him. It's that, that easy of a point. Let's continue. There were so many of them, though, that he told his disciples who were around him to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. There was a safety issue here. There's so many people around him, so many people, as verse, nine, uh, verse 10 tells us, that pressed around him or fell before him. It's the same word there that fell down before him in verse, uh, in verse 10 the pressed around in your ESV has the same root as the fall down before him that the demons do. They're falling over themselves. Why? Just to touch him. Because they've seen that if someone just touches the hem of Jesus's cloak, the clothing on him, that they will be healed. So it's quite understandable. And Jesus's mission, though, as Mark chapter 1, verse 45 has told us, is to preach and to teach. So to ensure he's able to do this, he already has two disciples whose old 
business was the fishing business. So he had them prepare a small boat for him. He got on it and was on the shoreline teaching the crowd, lest they crush him. And then we have an interesting scene that has happened numerous times already in Mark's gospel, starting in verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. There's many different reasons why Jesus did not order the demons to be quiet. And I've kind of been trying to, as we go throughout our text, just to kind of slowly point to different things. So by the end of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, you'll have like a list of 10 different reasons why Jesus told them to be quiet. Here, though, I think it's important to say that this cry was not, you know, considering its source, this was an antagonistic cry. This was not the cry of, unfortunately, the way maybe I read it the first time, of you are the son of God. These are demons speaking. These are demons who are trying to turn the crowd away from Jesus, who are afflicting the people so much that in verse 10, the word for all the diseases that they were being healed from, that word there for diseases, I think would be better translated afflictions. It's the word whip. It's the word for someone who, what they're holding. Jesus will be whipped with a whip. And, there's, and this is basically like a colloquialism, using this word to say, this is my, that these are my afflictions. And it's right to translate diseases because it's also translated diseases when this word is used. But I think it's better translated as affliction to realize that these people are hurting. The disciples, or rather the demons, not the disciples, the demons say, you are the son of God. They're not bearing testimony necessarily to him being the king of the universe and savior. They're just, as spiritual beings, have this bent in response to, immediate response, to say, recognize that Jesus is deity. He is the son of God. But Jesus does not want, and this is the reason why he's telling them not to, or ordering them not to make him known, is first, he doesn't want demons to be the one who's saying who he is. He doesn't need the testimony of demons. First, that might lead to the confusion that's going to happen in the next text, where we're going to see that's what the Pharisees accused Jesus of, casting out demons by the power of demons. But if you actually looked at Jesus's works and words, you wouldn't need their testimony anyways. What you need to know who Jesus is, is to see his works, to see his words. That's what Jesus said when he uh, spoke to them. My notes are a little stuck to the table. I'll try to do them one at a time. We'll see. That when he was speaking with his disciples... I'll just try to recite it. When he was speaking to his disciples, he, I think it's John chapter 15, he says, don't, he says, believe me, 
for all of the things that I've done, that the works that of his hands, the works, the message that he preached, these are reasons enough to believe who Jesus is. John the Baptist, when he was questioning the identity of Jesus, the answer Jesus gave him was to believe, he said, go and report back to John the Baptist what you have seen. The lepers are healed. The deaf hear. The lame walk. These things could only be done by God. He wants people to believe in who he is because his very works bear testimony to who he is. The crowd is made up of a bunch of different disciples. Disciples that are rightly following him because in contrast to the demonic message, verse 8, they followed him because they heard all that he was doing. And like we said already, that's the reason why we should all be disciples of Jesus. But all apostles, while all apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles. It doesn't work both ways. Let's look at this unique calling that Jesus has on the disciples as he selects those who are going to represent his authority, starting in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. The first thing to note by these who are chosen by Jesus is that Jesus called whomever he desired. Jesus called whoever he desired. Let's see if I can make actually use of my notes now. Oh, yes, I can. That's, that's nice. That's nice. They're not stuck. They're in the right order. It's, it's a good change of pace. Jesus noted to them when he was praying for them in, Mark, in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, Jesus was teaching them about how they are to love one another. And he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. What gives these 12 men, whoever they are, unique place is the fact that Jesus chose them. And that's actually applies to all disciples. We already read of David. David wanted to do great things for the Lord. He wanted to build the temple. But God said, wait, I don't need your work and your effort. You are not king because you are, you've made yourself king. I chose a shepherd from the middle of nowhere. And I made the middle of nowhere man king over all Israel. I'm the one who made these promises. And instead, David, 
I'm going to keep my promises to you. It's not going to be the other way around. And before David, though, long before David, God said this concerning Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why does God choose these 12? Because Jesus chose that. The reason why they're followers of Jesus, they might have heard different things and came to him, but the ultimate reason why they're apostles and the ultimate reason why they're disciples to begin with is because Jesus chose them. Listen to what Jesus says when he's teaching a crowd. Now it's not just the apostles in John chapter 10. This is John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep who are not of this fold, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that just as it was for them, the apostles, so it is for all disciples. Jesus preaches a message. Those who respond, respond because they're the sheep of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that the Father, before all eternity, chose his people, whom he would save that he would send his son to die for those people, to pay for those particular, for those people's sins in particular. That the Holy Spirit, in accordance with the same plan of the Father and the same actions of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would go and cause his people to believe. But we have an operation here is the work of the triune God. The triune God has been incarnate through the Son, The Son of God has been incarnate, and he's going to save his people, and he chooses the 12 just as he chooses everyone. And it's according to Jesus' desire. And he pointed 12. Why 12? You have this huge crowd of disciples, and Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to choose 12 to be the people who are the with-me people and the apostle people. I'll explain what that means in just a moment. The reason why he chose 12 is something that a first century Jew would have known instantaneously what he was doing. Jesus had gone up on a mountain, if you remember. Jesus had gone up on a mountain to choose these 12 people. And a number, this, the number 12, I, I looked to see exactly why. Everyone, all the commentators on this text seem to say that there's significance to Jesus beyond the mountain but none of them were really clear on what that significance actually was. So it's an important detail. But the great thing is that we have absolute clarity on why he chose the number 12. 
listen to this one commentary that said, a first century Jew would have immediately made the connection between the number of disciples and the 12 tribes of Israel. In nucleus form, the 12 disciples symbolize the 12 tribes. This explains why the apostles are so intent on preserving the number 12 in Acts chapter 1, verses 1, 15 through 26. 12 is the number of tribes, number of Jacob's sons. 12 is the number of tribes that Moses charged to function as the priest of Israel. Function as, not in priest in the sense of the Levites were the only ones charged with the priesthood in the sense of making sacrifices to God. But all 12 tribes, all of Israel, the nation, was charged with to be the function of a priesthood to all the nations. Their goal was to convert them, bear witness to God, and bring them in to worship the one true God. Peter transfers this same language in 1 Peter chapter 1 to say that what he's made in the church in 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2, that he's made us, the church of Jesus Christ, all his disciples now, a holy priesthood, picking up on the same Israelite language. What Jesus is doing then is explicitly starting kind of a new Israel. Read when you have time, Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, if you want to know the, notice the fact that this is a unique group of people, chapter 21 uh, verse 14 of the book of Revelation says that in the eternal new heavens, the new earth, that he'll see that there will be a great wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On these three gates, the three on the north, the three on the south, the three on the west, the 12 tribes of Israel, are, their names are posted. Verse 16, oh, I actually skipped it. It's verse uh, 14, that on this, and on the, I started early, that's what I did. And verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. When talking about this great city that God is going to create on the new heavens and the new earth, he talks about the fact that the gates have inscribed on them the 12 tribes of Israel. But on the foundation of that building is the 12, name of the 12 apostles. These are unique individuals, and their uniqueness comes from the fact that these 12 are called, are chosen to represent his authority. Look at the reason, starting in verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he named apostles, so that, for the reason of what? That they might, first of all, be with him. It's really interesting to note that these 12 men, something that everyone knew when they saw them was that they had been with Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 I think I'm just going to start turning to it to make sure we get it. Acts chapter 12, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived 
that they were great people, outstanding speakers. That's why people are coming in droves into the church. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm not reading that accurately. They perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, I think it's at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 when they point Matthias, after Judas had betrayed and he died, they were really intent on keeping that number, the number of 12 apostles, for the reason that we just spoke to. But the person they spoke, part of the, part of the uh, prerequisites that they had to fulfill in order to be a disciple, wanted to be one of the 12 apostles, is that they had to have been with Jesus from the very beginning. And at this point, because all disciples are not apostles, it's important to note that being with Jesus is also important for us. That that quality that the apostles had of being with Jesus is something that is to mark all of Jesus's disciples. In order to stop sinning, if you want to have your life transformed, what's required? Spend, this is my practical advice, spend time with Jesus. That's why we focus on in this church so much on the means of grace. We focus on the fact that Jesus Christ is the only source of our salvation. We want to read his word because that's where Jesus, we see Jesus. We spend time with the word of God. We have this relationship with the Father because we've been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit who empowers our lives. And if we go to him in his word, We'll watch as over time, over years and years of spending more and more time with Jesus, that our life is suddenly being conformed in his image. We see our minds starting to think in different ways. We see in our prayers that if we pray, the more that we pray, the more time that we spend with Jesus, we see our heart's orientation being changed. And in the means of grace, that's why we're singing to Jesus. We're seeing God's word back to him. We're hearing his word preached. We're watching his promises, whether it's in baptism or the Lord's Supper, seeing what God's promises are to his people, those who trust in him, and having our faith nurtured by that. All these things speak to the importance of being with Jesus. But what marked out the disciples, uh, the apostles rather, distinctly, is that they had been with him personally. While none of us were called directly by Jesus Christ in the sense that we heard some audible voice or like Paul and his apostleship, if you're wondering on this point, who Jesus appeared before him in person and audibly called him to follow him. Instead, now we have the promise of Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, that Jesus will be with his church throughout all the ages, even till the end. It's not talking there about his physical presence, but it's talking about his spiritual presence. And every believer, the mark of every true disciple of Jesus Christ is that they have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ because they were called by him. They were, the first mark of the apostles is that they were with him. And they were with him in a sense closer than any of the other disciples. 
They are, throughout the rest of this book, you'll see that they are the inside, they're the insiders. Jesus gives them the explanations of his parables. They're so close to him that what we have in the scriptures are eyewitness accounts of everything that Jesus said and did. The fact that they were with him is also really important because that is what we have in the scriptures. Think about the foundation real quick. Jesus made a promise to them in John chapter 17. Well, I don't know what the point is, me bringing notes up. Here it is sometimes. John chapter 17. Jesus makes a promise to these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles, that he would be with them and that he would give them his word. He promises to give them the Holy Spirit that would lead them into all truth. Read John chapter 17 to see where the fact that Jesus Christ, that when he was with his disciples, he promised them that he would lead them by the Holy Spirit, that he would send them as a guard to keep and preserve them, and that the Holy Spirit would lead them into all truth. And what we have in the books of the New Testament is actually not any of the direct words of Jesus in the sense that Jesus is not the one who's writing them out. But we have, what, what we have in the New Testament is the words of Jesus delivered through the testimony of the apostles who were led to speak all the truth by the fact that the Holy Spirit was with them to guide them. The apostles are the apostolic foundation of the church because what created the church what sustains the church is their message, and the message specifically about Jesus Christ and what he did and what the effects of that were on the world and what the effects of that are to be in our hearts and what it all means. The apostles are primarily the foundation of the church because of what we hold in our hands. They give us the rule and the standard of what we believe and why we believe it. No other tradition in the church can bear the claim theanoustast, being breathed out by God himself. But the words of the apostles can make that claim. So the apostles were with Jesus. That was one thing that marked them out. The other reason why I said that they have a delegated authority to represent Jesus is this second governing participle about why he appointed them. Verse 14. And he might or so that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 and verse 12 set, shows an example of when Jesus does send them out. And in that case, they preach, yes, but the content of their preaching is preaching repentance, that the kingdom is near, and they cast out demons. That last one that they're sent to preach, but also to have authority to cast out demons. What is Jesus giving these 12 apostles that's something that's unique to them? He has given these 12 disciples, the reason, these 12 disciples, making them into apostles, giving them a unique authority that is all their own, that's not 
passed down to other individuals, that's then passed down to other individuals. No, as we read in Revelation chapter 21, this, their, their very names are what's written on the foundations of the church, and they're given Jesus's authority. Now, once again, maybe we are going back to that same question that we had in the beginning, which is, how are the, the apostles the foundation of the church? Well, first of all, they give us scripture, but we could get to a more principled answer there just to say that because the apostles were chosen by Jesus Christ, they were chosen by him to preach his message, and they were chosen to have his authority in establishing the New Testament church, which you can read about in the book of Acts. What makes the apostles the foundation of the church is their direct connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so important to understand that our Christian faith is not built on nothing. We're not standing on thin air. We're not having to figure things out. If you want to know what you are to believe and why you're to believe it, go to the scriptures, read the testimony of the apostles, and read everything they bear witness to about who Jesus is and what he has done. Lastly, my third point, let's look at who is specifically chosen. And you don't need to worry too much. There's a reason why I've left this third point to be my shortest point. Verse 16, he appointed 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonagus, that is, the sons of thunder. And I'm pronouncing that differently every time. Uh, Verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean. Did you notice just how quickly I'm reading that list? We have three individuals that Jesus gave nicknames to. We have Peter, who's given the nickname, uh, Simon, who's given the nickname Peter. And he gives a nickname also to two others, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his, the brother of James. They're given the name Sons of Thunder. These are the inner core of the disciples. But besides these nicknames, we're not really given too much information about them. And when you read through the New Testament, it's interesting that the very foundation of the church, not too mu- there's not very much information given about these individuals. It's because who these individuals are is not really the point. We know some things about them. We know that Peter was emotionally unstable. We know that that, uh, Thomas was a doubter and would not even believe Jesus when he saw him right uh, until he appeared right before him to say, hey, I listened to your conversation from earlier. You can touch my hands and my feet to feel the holes we know, that, we know that Matthew was a tax collector, someone hated by society, and was claimed by society to be the very worst of sinners. The one thing that we read when you read, the only things that we do know about this list is how unimpressive these men are. Isn't that amazing? When you think about the 12 apostles, it's a good thing to note that this list, one, one quality of it is that Peter always appears as the very first one listed in all the different variations. He's always listed first. 
let it be of comfort to you, a disciple of Jesus, that the most prominent, most prominent apostle was the one who messed up the most. He's the one who denied the Lord Jesus. He made a mess of things over and over and over again. Why was Peter chosen? It was definitely not any merit to be found in himself. It was found in the man who called him, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And our lives often are marked by that, aren't they? Marked by doubt, by mistakes. Isn't it so great that Jesus choosing us is not based on our goodness or our merit? And actually, when you're reading through this list, there's only one other person who's given kind of a parenthetical. And it's Judas Iscariot who handed him over. Judas wasn't alone in this. People handed over the same word, John the Baptist, to uh, Herod to be killed. The Jews as a whole, after they falsely tried Jesus, handed him over to Pilate, who handed him back over to the soldiers to be killed. But Judas was a cog in this machine, and I think it's also important to note that if anyone on this list would be impressive, it would have been Judas Iscariot. That's why he's the money man. That's why he's carrying and the financing the operation. That's why he's the person with connections to high places, and he can get in with the Pharisees to sell Jesus eventually. Jesus' choice of us is not found on our merit or who we are. It's a rather unimpressive list. We know that the Jesus, the, these 12 apostles, being this, recapping this introduction, is that these 12 apostles were chosen out of the midst of a crowd of disciples, a midst of followers who had heard everything he had done. And four of them, we know at least, Mark's gospel has already showed that Peter and John and, uh, and two other apostles followed Jesus and were called by him earlier in this chapter. But here we see that out of the crowd, he has called four, 12 men to represent him with a delegated authority. The second point was that Jesus' representatives were given a delegated authority that would eventually be used to establish the uh, foundation of the church as we have in the scriptures. And lastly, who was specifically chosen? Their merit was really nothing. The important point when knowing who the disciples are is to know that they were chosen by Jesus. And all who follow Jesus need to listen to his call. The call goes out to the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard the news of who he is. Follow him. And you'll have the same promise that was given to the, to the apostles. Eternal life with Jesus Christ on the new heavens and the new earth. You have the promise that Jesus died for your sins. That promise goes out to all. But those who respond are the ones that the Father draws to the Son. Those who Jesus came to die for. That's a sobering thing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. And it's funny how even when we read the introduction to the apostles, 
we're given a clear sight about who Jesus is. That Jesus chooses those who are to be his followers. He chose the apostles to represent him on the earth. He chose his apostles to be the instruments by which all the scriptures were written. And he chose the apostles, like us, despite themselves. Lord, we confess the same. We confess that all our worth, all our value is being found in Jesus Christ, in his call upon our lives. Lord, we confess that we often do not look like Jesus in how we act and how we speak, but Lord, we pray that as we spend more and more time with Jesus, that you would help us to put the sin to death as Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, and that we would live a new life transformed by our relationship with Jesus, the communion that we have with the living God who will not leave us in death, but give us everlasting life. Oh, Father, I pray that you would please cause us to cling to Jesus. And Lord, may we heed the warning that, like Judas, there are some who will stay near Jesus, be close to him, and yet will have no effect on their soul. Lord, we pray that that would not be true of anyone in this room. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be sent out onto every individual in this room to convict them of their sin, convict them of God's righteousness and his goodness, and convict them that what Jesus did and said was true, and that our foundation that we stand on, this foundation of the word of God, as spoken by all the prophets and all the apostles, the apostles who spoke the name and the words and works of Jesus Christ, pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would draw them to salvation. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's at this time that we're going to confess our faith together. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read.